I'm uh, humbled to be here this morning to, to bring God's word to you. I feel like there are men in the crowd far more capable to do this than I am. But nevertheless, the Lord has given me a word for you today. Um, so if you would, open your Bibles to, uh, to James. We're going to continue on with our series as we look at how the gospel is to affect our lives all day and every day. So if you're using one of the Bibles that's under the pew, that's going to be found on page 1011. Let me start and let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced something in life that was so monumental that you've never been the same since? Maybe for you fathers out there, this was the day that your first child was born, or your second or your third, but the day when your child was born. Or maybe it was something as tragic as the death of a loved one. I know for me, there's been a couple moments in my life that, that have changed the, the trajectory and the rest of my life. And I know that one was the day that I met my wife, Jennifer. I remember the day, like it was yesterday, when I saw her walk into the church that we were a part of. She was wearing this nice yellow, pretty dress, caught my eye. I said, all right, I got to talk to this girl. And I remember even more clearly the day that I dropped her off on one of our dates, and I knew that she was going to be the wife, that she was going to be my wife, that the Lord created her for me. Well, today in the passage, in James 1, 19 through 27, James is going to argue that the new birth that we experience as followers of Christ is such a huge moment in our lives that our lives will never and can never be the same. At the moment of salvation, we'll start to long for God. We'll long to know him and to live for him. And our daily actions will be forever changed. So let's jump into the text that God has for us today. We'll have the text right on the screen, but follow me with, in your word. James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. A religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the word, from the world, says the word of God. As we've seen in the past two weeks, the book of James is extremely practical, right? And right off the bat in our passage today, he's giving practical wisdom and exhortation to us. He says specifically that we're to be what? Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And this is, this is a general encouragement that I know that we hear quite often. Um, and James, in giving this exhortation, he's actually echoing Jewish wisdom literature. If you've read through the Bible at all, you'll see that the Bible speaks much about the way we use our tongues. There's many exhortations to use our tongues for the righteousness, the glory of God. There's a passage specifically in Proverbs 17, 27 through 28, which says this. 
Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Pretty harsh words, but a practical exhortation nonetheless. So upon reading the rest of the book of James, and we'll see as we continue to go through in our series, it's obvious that these believers that James is speaking to, they struggle with the use of their turn, with, with the use of their tongues. He, uh, James actually addresses the use of the tongue five other times in his, in his letter, including one more today. Uh, so, so these believers definitely were struggling with the use of their tongue. And I know, much like them, this has been me, right? If you're in relationships, and I, I know a couple of you guys have, have at least some friends, but a lot of you guys are in relationships, married, that, uh, that often we do, we what? We listen little, and we speak much. More times, than not, more times than not, this can get us into trouble, right? So we would do well to listen to, listen to James' encouragement. So James, he tells these believers that a lack of listening combined with a quick tongue will, more often than not, result in ill-tempered action. But if we look a little bit closer in this passage, if we look at verse 20, we'll see that there's actually another reason that James gives this exhortation at the beginning of this passage. And we can't miss this. So look at verse, look at the reason why these believers are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger in verse 20. James says this, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's interesting, this reference to the righteousness of God that James uses here um, is specifically referring to morally acceptable behavior before God. Or another way to say that would just be actions that bring pleasure to God. So James is saying the use of your tongue in an ill fashion doesn't bring pleasure to God. Therefore, do these things. Um, but if we think in light of what we heard last week in James 1, uh, verse 18, we see that James is speaking to his beloved brothers. He's speaking to those who are in the family of faith. He's speaking to those who have been brought forth by the word of truth, those who have been spiritually reborn. 1 Peter 1.3 describes, uh, describes the spiritual new birth like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we who are followers of Christ, we who will be included in this beloved brothers that James addresses in verse 19, we've been spiritually born again. We've escaped the wrath of God on our sin. But I believe that James is also arguing that in being born again and brought forth by the word of truth, that we are to live in light of this new birth. So I believe this encouragement that James is giving us, the first main encouragement, the main truth that I want us to hold today is that as followers of Christ, we are to live in light of our spiritual new birth. If we've experienced the spiritual new birth given by God, then we ought to be striving to live in a way that brings pleasure to the God who saved us. And in the remaining verses, verse 21 through 27, we're going to see that James is going to tell us how we can do that. He's going to get very practical with us on how we can live in light of our spiritual new birth. So let's read verse, uh, verse 21 together. Word of God says this, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So in this verse, James is going to give us two very specific, very clear ways that we can live in light of our spiritual new birth. And he's going to give us one glorious result of doing so. So let's dive in. 
So the first encouragement that James gives, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness in your life. These words put away, as the ESV translates it, is also uh, in the the NASB is translated putting aside. Um, And and these words, they actually give the illustration of, of stripping off dirty clothes, Right? So, so putting aside that which, is, that which is dirty. So I know a couple of you guys, I, I know I've seen some dirt in the fingernails, even some ladies as well, something personal. But I can see that a few of you have spent some time outside doing some yard work, right? Starting to get a little warm. It's a little humid the other day. You know, it's cool. I'm from the south. Not the biggest fan of hu- humidity, but nevertheless, it was serious. Anyway, so when you're working outside and you're working in your yard, oftentimes you'll get real dirty and you'll get real sweaty, Right? And I know for me, the first thing that I want to do when I walk in the door, man, I want to get, this, I want to get these dirty clothes off. I want to get cleaned up. In the same sense, James is, is telling us to do the very same thing with our sin. To continue on with this illustration, the filthiness and rampant wickedness that James refers to, that's his way of describing our sin. And really, these specific words, they give a very descriptive reminder of how just detestable our sin really is to a holy God. The words used is filthiness and, and rampant wickedness. Our God is holy. Our God is righteous. Our God is perfect. Is there anything that is outside, outside of his character is considered detestable? It's filthy. It's loathsome. And so we who have been born again, we who have received life, through placing faith in Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, we are to view sin the same way. And so we as God's people, are to be about putting aside and putting away our sin. So the second way that James tells us to live in light of our spiritual new birth is to receive the implanted word. James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. So I have to ask the question. As I was studying this, I'm saying, okay, the word, I see, I see the word, but what does he mean by the implanted word? There's a specific adjective that he gives here. And before that, the, the term that he uses word in verse 21 is the same Greek term that he uses in verse 18. So he's referring specifically to the good news of Jesus Christ. He's referring specifically to the gospel. But the adjective of implanted gives the gospel the property of rooting itself into one's heart. This is really beautiful imagery. When you think about it, you stop and meditate. God is literally saying that the gospel, the word of truth, the gospel that we are brought forth by, that we are spiritually reborn by, can and should and will be implanted in those whom God has redeemed to himself. And implanted. So there's this picture of the gospel literally coming in our hearts and sticking its roots down deeply in us deeper and deeper, transforming us to live more in line with who God is. So we allow the gospel to take root in our lives and to produce fruit for the glory of God. So how is this done? Okay, so we're, I see we're supposed to be born again by the gospel. And then once we are brought forth, once we have been redeemed, we're supposed to receive the word again. So how is this, how is this tangibly done? Yesterday, me and my man AP were out throwing a football we call some good receptions, you know what I'm saying? We have, we have some good receptions, but how do you receive the implanted word? How do you receive it in such a way that it's implanted? Let's um, say, just as we've kind of covered already, that you receive the implanted word when you're born again. <laughs> when you're born again, literally, God takes his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, allowing us to see our condition before God as those who have sinned against him. And we also 
realize that we are worthy of, of God's wrath on our sin. We see that, but it's not done by ourselves. That's the Holy Spirit coming in us. And at the same moment, when we place faith in Christ and his work on the cross, paying our sin debt with his sacrifice, the Holy Spirit takes the word and implants it into our hearts. He gives us desires for it. He gives us longings for it. This is a picture that James gives us of the implanted word. And really, this reference that James gives us here of the word being implanted, this picture, it's really... He's really alluding to this is, hey, this is the fulfillment of a prophecy that God gave. The Lord used a prophet named Jeremiah in the Old Testament. We look at this passage, Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. So read along with me. This is what the Lord says through his prophet. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. How sweet would those words have been to Israel, who constantly was forgetting the word, was constantly sinning against God. And how sweet are those words to us. I know for me personally, I constantly am sinning and falling and having to run back to God. But the Lord promises that when I am spiritually reborn, that the word has been implanted in my heart and in yours as well. The word has been written on our hearts. But also, so we receive the word when we are born again. But also, after we've been born again, after the word has been implanted in us, we receive the word by being continually exposed by it throughout the rest of our lives. And so it really gives this picture that and a gospel seed has been planted in our hearts. And so we have desires for the Lord. But as we are exposed to it more and more and more, it's just, we'll continue the illustration, the roots of the gospel go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into our lives, giving us new desires that transform the way we live. That's re- really beautiful. And so how does this happen? Well, we're exposed to the word by the rhythms of grace that God's given us. And we can, we can read the word. Right? We have access to the Bible. We can read it. We can study it. We can meditate upon it. We can memorize it. And even coming to a gathering like this today, you're being exposed to the Word. You're being exposed to the Gospel. So the Gospel is literally rooting itself deeper and deeper into your heart. And James also gives us the result of receiving, of putting away sin and receiving the implanted Word. And the result is glorious. This is what he says. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. And here's the result. Which is able to save your souls. Good. This reference to salvation, it gives light to to God's all-encompassing salvation. All right? So a lot of people will think, well, I've been saved. I've I've been saved, and so I'm done. I'm good. I'm not going to hell. I'm, I'm restored in my relationship with God. Okay, I'm set. I can move on. But no, this is not this is not the picture at all. There's not a picture of God's salvation is one that's all-encompassing. So when we first turn to Christ, when we first, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are given faith to see our sin and Christ's finished work on the cross, and we turn from our sin and place faith in him, we are immediately, at that moment, justified. We're considered righteous before God. But that's not the only time that it happens. We are continually, throughout the rest of our life, we're being transformed more and more and more into the image of God. This is our sanctification. And then ultimately, at the end of our life, or if Christ returned before we die, we will receive our ultimate salvation, where we will be freed completely from the effects of sin in our life. No more death, 
No more of these tensions that we feel. No more get ex- exhortations from James needed to be given and be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It will be finished. Be glorified. This is a glorious, glorious truth. So allow that to motivate you to be one who receives the implanted word. One, your salvation depends upon it. But two, the gospel will root itself deeper and deeper and deeper into your heart. So in the remainder of this passage that we have, James is going to expound upon. He's going to continue to expound upon what it means to receive the implanted word um, and what that actually what that actually entails. And in in the rest of his in 22 to 25, James is going to tell us to do not be merely hearers of the word, but to obey the word. So let's read, uh, let's read verses 22 and 25 together. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if, it, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, where he looks at himself and goes away, and he once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In this passage, James makes it crystal clear that successfully receiving the word only happens when it results in actually doing the word. Because that successfully receiving the word, successfully receiving the implanted word is only done when receiving the word results in doing. And also, before we start diving into this passage, I want to make clear one thing. When we hear, when James says, be doers of the word, uh, to do the word, he's, he's really telling us to obey the word, okay? So in being a doer of the word, you are characterized as one who obeys the word. You take God, what his word says, and you live it out, and you, and you do it, you obey it. So as we start to dive into this, into this verse, let's remember what we said to be true in verse 21, that the result of receiving the implanted word is the salvation of our souls. And then in verse 22 through 25, James is going to make it crystal clear that successfully receiving the word only occurs when it results in doing the word. And look at what James says at the end of verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Here's the key, key phrase. Deceiving yourselves. Deceiving yourselves. Deceived of what? Deceived of what? Deceived into thinking that we've received the word when we really haven't. Being deceived that we've received the word and thus received the salvation that results from receiving it. This is a hard word. This is a hard word. Church, please listen. It's possible. It is possible for you to sit in a church service and to hear the word for the rest of your life until you die but yet to never truly receive salvation. It's a real possibility, and it's one that must be taken with, with a great level of seriousness. It's possible, as Paul saying it is possible to hear the gospel over and over and over and over again, but then to never have truly received it, to never truly be saved. So merely hearing the word and not being practically transformed by it is to be deceived into thinking that we've been given salvation. Look at these two passages with me, and, and I want you to, as we read these, just feel the weight and the reality of what the Word of God says. Romans 2.13 says this, There's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The doers of the law who will be justified. 
And then listen to what our Savior says. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's the one who does the will of his Father. It's the one who hears, who has received, but it results in doing. So, okay, you may be asking, all right, here at Redemption Hill, we promote and we know that the Bible teaches that salvation, the salvation of our souls, rests upon our faith, right? We would agree with that. That's what we preach. So how in the world does James' emphasis on doing, how does that coincide? How does that match up with our faith? How does that match up with believing for salvation? Doesn't the Bible teach that our salvation is granted through faith in Christ? Yes, yes, and praise God that it does. Our salvation is dependent upon faith alone. Romans 10, 13 says that for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. That's good news. We don't have to do a thing to earn our salvation. We must place faith in Christ. Place faith in his finished work. We see our sin. We repent of it. We place faith in Christ and have him as Lord for the rest of our lives. And we're saved. That's good news. That's good news. But, but I'll also say that our faith is always displayed by what we do. Always. What we believe is always worn on our shoulder. It's always there. It's always there. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Praise the Lord. Salvation by faith alone. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's a strong word. So being deceived that we've received salvation is a real possibility. It's real, okay? It's real and it's rampant throughout the American church. So please, as we continue on through this, really consider and look and, and ask God to reveal. I had to do this myself as I studied this text. It was a hard text to study, but it was good for me. It was good for me, and I pray it's good for you. So as we continue on, please ask that God would reveal whether or not your characteristic of one who does the word or one who hears the word. Because there's no, there's no greater thing that we need to look at. Are we really saved? Have we really been transformed by the gospel. So let's continue on through the passages. James is going to give us a clear contrast between what a hearer of the word looks like and then what a doer of the word looks like as well. So in 23 through 24, James is going to give us an illustration of a hearer of the word. Here's what he says. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, where he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. This is pretty, a pretty radical illustration, right? I mean, I looked at myself for, I mean, maybe a minute this morning. I can still remember what I look like. I mean, I wasn't the most pleased with it, but I remember what I look like, nevertheless, you know what I'm saying? So to take this illustration a little bit further, let's say that you are going out on the town. Let's say you got a date with your significant other, maybe, or Let's say maybe you're just going out with your friends or whatever. You're going out. You got to get dressed up. It's a collared event. You got to have a button down on. You got to be looking fresh. Okay. So you get ready. You're getting suited up. You got all your stuff on. You got your pretty dress on if you're, if you're a lady. And then you're going to do one more check. You're going to do one more overview, right? After you get cleaned up, you always look in the mirror, right? It's like, all right, I'm going to put together. Okay, I match. So let's say you go to the mirror. You look intently at your natural face. This is what you see. You see a big white zit. Boom. Right on your forehead. Boom. Right there. It's unavoidable. It's there. It looks like a third eye. Okay? It's there. So you look at it for a second. 
You're going to shrug your shoulders. You remember, oh, yeah, I need to go turn. I need to go turn something another off. So you go, you, you turn off, you get your house ready to leave, and you just walk out the door. You completely forget that the pimple was there. You forgot. So you show up to the event. You show up, you're driving in your car. You whip up to pick up your date. She's like, well, yo, where'd you get that third eye? You know what I'm saying? It would be, we would feel like the one who forgot about the huge zit and did do something about it. They'd be pretty foolish, right? But if you have a big zit on your face, like, you know what I'm saying? Typically, you do something about it, right? But James is driving home in this illustration a serious point that the hearer of the word is one who forgets the word. They forget it. They look at the word intently, seeing who they are, seeing what is really there, seeing the sin and the reality of condemnation of it, and then they move and turn and do nothing about it. Foolish. Foolish. And James, when he identifies, he identifies that the key failure of the hearer, don't miss this, the key failure of the hearer is that they forget. They forget. So in, in pointing out this characteristic, James is touching upon a pervasive biblical theme that's all throughout the Bible. If you think about the Old Testament for a minute, Israel was constantly, they were constantly forgetting what God had done. They forgot. They would forget all the time. They forgot that it was God who allowed the ark to be built by Noah, that when he flooded the earth to start, basically start again, that he preserved humanity. They forgot this. They forgot that it was God who pulled them out of Egypt. They forget that it was God who parted the Red Sea. They forgot that it was God who provided manna in the desert. And so in their forgetting, ultimately, it would lead to, to their sin and their destruction. And so it's the very act of forgetting what God has done that is the key failure of, of the hearer. So to sum up the characteristics of the one who hears the word, maybe said that the hearer, they look into the, they look into the word and they see who they are. So they look into the word. They do nothing about the truths that they see. They walk away from it and they forget what they have seen. And then ultimately, they're deceived of their salvation. So okay, let's move forward. In verse 25, James is going to continue, and he's going to give us a description of the doer of the word. And it's interesting that James doesn't continue on with an illustration. He's just real blunt. He's just real, he's just real quick about it. He just lays it out there because he wants us to understand what it is that a doer does. So let's check it out. I'm going to read verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Notice here that James, he switches from using the term word to using the term law in this verse. If you read quickly, you don't even, you don't even really see it, but it's, it's extremely important. And the term law in this verse, it's not only referring to the Old Testament law, but it's referring to the Old Testament law as it's interpreted and fulfilled in Christ. So James, in, in chapter 2, Verses 8 through 13, I'm not going to take the time to read through it, but in the next coming weeks, we'll, we'll expand upon this. But James reminds his readers that to break one of the Old Testament law is to break all of them. To break one law is to become guilty of it all and deserve the condemnation of it all. And so the law was seen as one that was enslaving because there's no person that can upkeep the law perfectly. No one. And no, no person on earth who could ever complete the law perfectly. And so the law became one of enslavement. Because if you're under the law, you've broken the law. And if you've broken the law, then you deserve the condemnation that's there. And so it was. It was one of enslavement. 
There's no escape from it. But, but here's the good news. Christ has come. Christ has come to fulfill the law completely. <laughs> he lived righteously, upholding every dot and iota perfectly of the law. And then, and then, even better, he bore the punishment that we so deserve for breaking the law on himself, satisfying God's wrath and then offering his righteousness to all who would place faith in him. And so the law now, by placing faith in Christ, we can now be forgiven. We are now forgiven of the condemnation that we so deserve for breaking God's law. And so now the law becomes one of what? One of liberty. Because now we don't, we don't live to obey the law because out of fear. We don't do it all. Man, i got to hold everything together because if I don't, God's going to smite me to the ground. No, rather, we can live in accordance with God's word because we long to. Because we long to. We've been freed from it. So now we can live and serve God out of joy, out of love for him and for what he's done. And look also at what James says in verse 25 about the doer of the word. He uses the word looks. You're probably thinking, okay, big deal. He uses the word looks. The guy who hears, we talked about earlier, that the one who, who saw the pimple on their face, they looked into the mirror, right? Like, big deal, they looked into it. But the term that he uses for looks here is, is different. This verb is one used to convey an, an investigation, all right? So the doer of the word, he, man, he's investigating the text. Man, he's examining it deeply, looking for the meanings of it, looking to apply it into his own life, looking into it deeply. So the doer of the word, he's not one who takes a couple minutes out of his day to look at a verse, to look at it real quick, be like, okay, that's a good nugget, shut the phone down, let me move on with my day. That's not what the doer of the word does. The doer of the word doesn't just look at, look at the Bible for a couple minutes to get their fix. The doer of the word is one who looks intently. He investigates it. He examines it. He's looking for the meaning. He's looking to dive into it. So, so let me ask you this. <laughs> this is personal. I had to ask myself this question. How do you treat the text? How do you treat the text? How do I treat the text? Do I come to the text quickly? Do I come to kind of check my Christian box? Oh, yeah, boom. Got my scripture for the day. There you go. Meta memo. Got it. Boom. Moving on. Or are you like a doer of the word who's taking time, who's, who's even sacrificing maybe even a little sleep, getting up early or, or, or staying up late or, or whatever it may be? Are you sacrificing time to dive into the word, to soak it up deeply? This is what the doer of the word does. So to kind of summarize, the doer of the word is one who has accepted the freedom from the law given by faith in Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he looks into the law of liberty, seeking to apply its truth into their lives. And you also see that the doer of the law, he perseveres. So seeing that the law is now one of liberty and seeing the blessing that comes from doing the word, obeying the word, and they persevere in doing it. This makes sense, right? Like, I love to play basketball. I'm a terrible basketball player. I'm terrible at it. But I love to do it. It's fun. So when I can, if I can get time or I'll even make time to go and play, to go shoot some hoops. I love to do it. And you, I'm sure there's activities that you enjoy doing, and you persevere in doing them, right? If you love to run, you'll love those endorphins that you feel, you'll, you'll continue to run. In the same sense, James is saying that the doer of the word is one who perseveres in his doing. He acts upon his, his desire to continue on in the word, which is good. And then lastly, James, he's going to tell us that the doer of the word is blessed in his doing. Blessed in his doing. The doer of the word is assured of his salvation. He's assured that, that I am God's. He can see that the, the gospel has been implanted deeply in his life and can, and can look at his life and say, wow, look at, look at how God has transformed me. Look what the Lord has done. I surely am his. 
They have the blessed assurance that they are God's. But also, as they continue on through life, they're blessed in the sense that they uh, can experience the oneness with God, communing with Him, knowing that they're in God's will every step of the way. So I want you to, I want you to ask these questions to yourself. Maybe you write them down and ask later. But, but really, does your actions reflect that of the doer of the word or the hearer of the word? This is so important that we're honest with ourselves because, like we said earlier, deception of salvation is real. And the one who hears the word and forgets it and does nothing for it could be deceived of salvation. And then another question to tag on with that is, man, am I experiencing the blessing of obeying God's word? Do I, am I experiencing that blessing each day? Have I, have I experienced it initially at the point of salvation, but, but each and every day do I experience God's blessing? If, if you're not, Maybe you're, not, maybe you're not doing the word. So okay, in the last two verses, James is going to give us uh, this last encouragement, which, which tags along with the rest, to demonstrate our salvation by applying the word to your daily life. So let me read these last two verses for us, 26, 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. A religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from word, from the world. Did it again. So in these passages, James uses the term religion a couple times. And I know that in the Christian bubble, we often hate the term religion, right? I mean, we should be honest, a lot of us don't like the word religion. A lot, you'll hear a lot of Christians say, well, you know, my religion, my, my, my Christianity is not so much a religion. It's more of a relationship. It's more of a relationship. It's not a religion. Religion is, religion is no good. Religion is bad. It's my, my Christianity is more of a relationship. That's, that's true, right? We come to Christ. We are reconciled to God. Our relationship is restored. Now where our sin no longer is a barrier between us and God, we do have relationship. But the way that James uses religion in this term is in a very positive sense. Very positive sense. He's referencing the external forms of, of Christianity. He's, he's the external form. So for us today in our context, this is an external form. This is an external form of Christianity. You're taking part of in it today. This is, this is part of your religion. Another thing would be our community groups that we have. We meet a couple of, you know, once a week throughout the year to encourage, spur one another on, help us deepen our relationship with Christ. That's, that's another form. Soccer nights that's coming up soon that we've heard a little bit about that, that Winlong spoke of earlier. And that's a form. We love Jesus. We've seen what he's done for us, how he served us. So we long, you know, we long to serve others. We desire to display the gospel through our actions. And so I just want to sum up, I'm just going to sum up what James is saying um, in these passages for us. James is saying that to take part in the external forms of the Christian life, but to not be internally changed by the gospel in such a way that it results in practically obeying God's word is to have our hearts deceived and our religion considered worthless by God. It's a strong word. I'll read it one more time. To take part in the, in the external forms of the Christian life, to be here this morning, to be, take part in community groups, to, to serve at soccer nights, but to not be internally changed by the gospel in such a way that it results in practically obeying God's word. It's 
to have our hearts deceived and our religion, our external forms of Christianity considered worthless by God. And this passage, as I was studying this text, it hit me square in the face. It hit me right in the face because I'm just be honest with you, I'll be very transparent. There's often been times that I've come to a Sunday gathering or I've showed up for a community group or I've served out in the community and my life on the day-to-day, on the grind, it doesn't match what I'm doing in, in, in this form, in this external form of Christianity. It doesn't match. But she's speaking to me. Man, when I show up, when I show up, and what I do here doesn't match up with what I do throughout the rest of the week, God considers this to be worthless. The hard word. So James is really getting at just how practical our faith is, how practical it is, how we are to be transformed. And every moment, every moment of the day is to be transformed by the gospel. And this is good news. This is good news. This gives purpose to everything we do. This gives freedom from the monotony that exists out in the world. You just go to your job, you come home, you're looking for the weekend, you're working for it. No, 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 that's not the life of the Christian. The life of the Christian, we have purpose in our lives. We can live for the glory of God each and every day. And not only we get the opportunity to, but it is expected. We have been transformed and we've received salvation it only makes sense, only makes sense that every day would be one characterized by a life transformed by the gospel. So God also shows us what type of religion is pure and undefiled before God. And this is good. And I believe what he's saying, I'm just going to sum it up, is that he's saying the re- religion that is the resulting overflow. Religion, so the external forms of Christianity, that is the resulting overflow of a life transformed by the gospel is pure and undefiled before God. And so he gives us three very clear, practical examples. When we're transformed by the gospel, we will bridle or control our tongues. We will. It'll come out. What's treasured in our heart will come out of our mouths. It's true. Jesus has said that. It's true. So we will bridle our tongues. We'll control our tongues. But also, when we're transformed by the gospel, we'll desire to care for those who are afflicted in this world, such as the orphan and the widow and Since it is Father's Day, let me give an exhortation to you fathers. And if you've been transformed by the gospel, if you have received the implanted word, then you must love your children as God has loved us. God is the Father. And he holds every widow and every orphan is in his eye. We are to live in such a way. So fathers, love your children like this. And then lastly, James says that when we're transformed by the gospel, we'll long to keep ourselves unstained from the world. We'll passionately seek the things of God. We who have been transformed and received the righteousness of Christ will long for the things that are righteous. We'll long to separate ourselves from that which God hates and deems detestable. We'll seek to put away the filthiness and the rampant wickedness that still exists in our, in our lives. We'll long to do that. and We'll long to live for the glory of Christ. And so I'm going to bring, bring our time down to a close. And I, I want to summarize what James communicated through this passage in one sentence. If we've been given the new life in Christ, then we will be transformed by the gospel of Christ, which is evidenced by doing his word. If if we have been given new life in Christ, then we will, we will be transformed by the gospel of Christ. And this is evidenced by obeying his word. So I ask you today, so what about you? What about you? Are you here today and you've heard the word of the gospel a couple times? 
but you've yet to experience a new birth, if that's you today, I plead, I plead with you to not foolishly hear the word and then forget completely what it says. The eternal matters at stake. And our sin that we commit each and every day is real. It does deserve God's wrath. He's a holy and righteous God. And He he is just. He is holy. He must uphold His holiness. And so sin will be condemned. But, But Christ has loved you. Christ has come. Christ has lived the righteousness that we all must, that we're held to. He has lived that. And then Christ in His love for you has taken your place and the sin, the, the condemnation that you deserve, he's taken that wrath upon himself on the cross. And in his resurrection, by placing faith in his death and resurrection, you can be forgiven. You can be spiritually reborn. So I plead with you today to not be a hero of the word. Or maybe today, through God's word, you've seen that, man, my life looks more like a hero. And I, my life does look more like a hero. I'm, I'm not being transformed. My My grind throughout the week doesn't quite look like what I do here on Sunday morning or or how I look when I'm serving on soccer nights. It doesn't look the same. If that's you, then I plead with you to cry out to God. Cry out to God and pray that He would would implant His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit, would implant His Word in your heart in such a way that the roots are deep. And His Gospel would transform your every every action. I'm going to dream for a second. What would happen if Redemption Hill Church became a church that was known by doing the Word. Not a church that's known by knowing a bunch of Scripture or we hear a lot of sermons or we serve a lot in our city. Man, what if, what if we were a church that was characterized by doing the Word? If we were a church that was obedient to God in everything, we sought to, to every action that we do, we seek to align it to what God's word said. What, what if that happened? Can you imagine? For one, we look radically different. But two, each one of us will be blessed. God says that in doing his word, there's blessing. That we individually will be blessed. We as a church will be blessed. But our city would also be blessed. Our city would also be blessed. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your grace in the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that our salvation is dependent upon, upon faith in Christ, that we may be restored to you by placing faith in your sacrifice on the cross. But God, I pray that you, in the power of your spirit, Lord, that you would transform our lives that you would make us into those who are obedient to your word, who long to do your word, who desire what you desire. Jesus, I pray that, that even as we respond, that your spirit would move and that you would have your way with us. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.